Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So when I go to the car dealer and my car is getting fixed, they always put me in this room and I hate it. It's the waiting room. When I go to the hospital and I have a loved one who's going through surgery, they always put me in this room and I hate it. It's the waiting room. The magazines are out of date. They're always stuck. The TV set is always stuck on some rerun of reruns of reruns. And people are talking on the phone and all this is going on and the chairs are uncomfortable. I, I just, I don't like the waiting room. I don't like waiting. I get bored. On top of that, I'm just kind of anxious because I'm worried about what's going on with my car or with my loved one, my wife, if she's having surgery or something like that. I, I care. And there I am sitting and waiting and I don't know what's going on. I hate the waiting room. Maybe you like the waiting room. I don't know. But chances are you probably don't like it either. The fact of the matter is, is that in God's plan and in his working in life, he often puts us in his waiting room. We have a plan. We have an idea. You know, we've prayed about it. We've thought about it. We've sought counsel about it. We've got an idea of what we're trying to do as parents. And, and then we get put on hold. There's a pause and our kids are making choices that really upset us and unsettle us and we wonder what's going on. Or maybe we have a dream of having children and we can't and we don't understand why. And we've tried everything and nothing works and here we are without kids and we feel like God's put us on hold. Or I know there was a couple years ago when I served the church in in Carroll County, they felt God was calling them to go to the mission field. They really believed it. They 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 prayed and they were just yielding their lives. They had a new home and they had a a child, a a toddler at that time. And they just were convinced that God, even though though all these things kind of made them think that they needed to stay, they really felt the burden in their heart to go. And so they began preparing to go and they started contacting potential supporters and they visited other churches and they sent out letters and they went for training and they worked with the representatives of the mission board they were going to work with and serve with and they even found a location where they were going to serve over in England and helping people learn how to become Bible translators. They were excited about this but God kind of pushed the pause button in their lives because it took a while for the support financially to come in. And I remember as they were waiting and as we were praying as a church, and we were just a little country church at this time. We didn't have a lot of money. We couldn't underwrite all their salary as they were going overseas. I remember being at a a church board meeting and we were sitting there talking about it and we were praying. We were praying all the time about this and we were praying again. And I remember one of the people that was on that board just kind of looked up and said, well, maybe God doesn't want them to go. And I remember thinking, no, they're supposed to go. I just don't know where the money is. God, where's the money? And, and it was one of those things where it was like a test. You know, are we really committed to sending them? Are they really committed to going? And are we willing to wait on God while he puts us on hold, while he's pushed that pause button in our lives and makes us sit in his waiting room? Well, thankfully... 
God did provide, and they spent 20 years with Wycliffe Bible translators serving not only in England, but also in Ethiopia, doing God's work, helping people learn how to read the scriptures in their own language, and then utilize it in their life as followers of Christ. It looked like God had put them on hold. It looked like there was a major pause in their lives, and there was a pause, and they did have to wait. But God worked it out in his own time. You may feel like you're sitting in the middle of a, a, a pause. You're parked in God's waiting room right now. In fact, they've got uh, your name on one of the chairs as you're sitting there, you know, the memorial chair, the honorable chair, reserved just for you, exactly. Maybe that's what you feel like. You want to be married and you're not. You want to have kids and you can't. You want that new job, but they hired somebody else. You are praying for someone to come to salvation, but they're not responding. You have an idea, a vision for how to train your children and that hasn't worked out or it's gone a different path. And it's easy to say in the middle of that while you're waiting, does God even care? Is God even working? He's absent. I think he's absent, you may say to yourself. If he's apparently absent, does that mean he doesn't care? And what I want to do this summer with you as we look at the scriptures, we're going to be spending our time in the Old Testament this summer between now and late August. We're going to be looking at two people in particular that I think at one time or another struggled with this idea of like, where is God and what's happening? Because I sure don't see him. You know, we've said our theme this year is God is on the move. But if we're honest, there are a lot of times where we're saying God might be on the move, but I think he moved right past me. I'm not sure where he's at, and I feel like I'm lost. What do you do when it looks like God's not involved and he doesn't care? Well, to help us understand that, we're going to be looking at the story of Queen Esther and the story of Joseph. And Joseph was the youngest one of the youngest sons of a guy named Jacob, who was one of the great patriarchs, kind of like one of the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. And Joseph went through a lot of adversity, and he had a lot of dreams that God had given him, but it sure looked like God was putting on him on hold. In fact, if anything, if you were to chart Joseph's life, the highs and the lows, he was definitely a roller coaster. A reckless, out of control roller coaster, because it just there are great high points. And then there are great low points. And then more high points and then even deeper low points. And you just wonder, where is God in working in all of this? And what, what is he doing? And the truth of the matter is, is that as we explore this passage that we're going to be reading today in Genesis chapter 37, we're going to see very clearly that even when it looks like God, you know, when God makes us wait, just because we're waiting, it doesn't mean God's not working. We may have to wait, but God's still working. He's not waiting. He's working. And you and I can take great comfort and great peace and great hope in that. Because God is on the move. God is working. And God is, he may appear to be silent, but he is definitely working and he's definitely moving and he's definitely caring for his people. And we see that as we explore the life of, of, of Joseph, which we'll be doing this summer. So let's take our Bibles and talk about these dreams and detours, and particularly talk about the, what looks like the death of a dream here in Genesis chapter 37, the life of Joseph. 
I'd like to read, starting in verse 1, and I trust that you'll follow along. This is on page 31, if you'd like to follow along. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph had brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him now joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers they hated him even more they said to him hear this dream that i have dreamed behold We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is God's word. Let me tell you a little bit about Joseph. Okay, so this is an interesting story, but some of you might be saying, well, I don't get it. Who's Jacob? Who's Joseph? What's the big deal? And why are we focusing on all of this? You need to understand that Joseph's father, Jacob, was the grandson, or rather, the grandson of the great patriarch of Israel's history, the man called Abraham. And God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be so many, they would be like the sand of the seashore or the stars of the nighttime sky. But Abraham had one son and his name was Isaac. And then he had, yes, there was another one named Ishmael by another wife, but Isaac was the one God had chosen. And then Isaac, he got married and he had two sons, Jacob and another brother, a twin brother called Esau. And so the family's still kind of small. And here's this Jacob. And now all of a sudden he has lots of sons, lots of children. Because in Jacob's story, he had run away from home after he cheated his brother by tricking his father to give him the blessing. He's run away from home. He falls in love with a girl. It's a shepherd girl and a family relative far away. And, and as he has worked for his father-in-law to marry this girl, the father does a switcheroo on him and tricks him and gives him his oldest daughter and not the youngest daughter, Rachel, that Jacob wanted. Well, then The father says, you can marry the younger daughter too. And so all of a sudden, Jacob has two wives, 
Rachel, the youngest daughter, the pretty daughter that he wanted, that he had fallen in love with, and then the older sister who was not as attractive in Jacob's mind, who was there that father wanted to make sure that he got her as well. Her name was Leah. Now the thing that is interesting is that Rachel was the, the wife that Jacob really loved, but she had infertility issues. She could not have any children at all. But Leah, who was not very attractive to Joseph, or to Jacob, she had lots of kids. She had six sons. It's like easy for her. Rachel decided, well, I need some help with this. And the custom in that time was you could give your husband a handmaiden, a servant girl. He could marry her, so to speak, have children with her, and they become your children. And so Rachel does that. And lo and behold, by that servant girl, there are two more sons born to Jacob. And not to be outdone, Leah says, well, you can have my servant girl as well. He has two children by, two sons by that servant girl. So all of a sudden, Jacob has these, these 10 sons by these four wives. Then all of a sudden, Rachel, the wife who was loved most of all, but had struggled with infertility, she's able to have a son. That's Joseph. Joseph is the youngest of all these sons. He is the favored son because he's born of the favored wife. He is treated special by, Joseph, by Jacob. He's given lots of favor. He's been given lots of opportunities. He's, he's treated like he's on the fast track for management and leadership. He's not one of the laborers like the rest of the family. I'm sure Jacob loved all his sons. I'm sure he cared about all them very deeply, but Joseph was a little extra special because he was the son of Rachel. You can imagine that a family that has four wives, that there's a lot of rivalry. You can imagine that there were a lot of headaches, a lot of competition, a lot of sibling rivalry. In fact, I think somebody asked Jacob one day, what is this, sibling rivalry? No, this is civil war, and that's what's going on here. And you can just imagine that what the, the Jacob family was like, all the chaos and all the confusion and all the fighting and arguing among the brothers. Who is going to climb the pecking order? Who's going to be the favorite son? And then all of a sudden Joseph shows up and he is now the, the target of everybody's ire. He's the, the one that everybody opposes because it's obvious that Jacob, daddy, favors him most of all. So there's this rivalry. There's all this tension. This is a family that puts the fun in dysfunction, and there's no question about it. As it keeps going in Joseph's life, the brothers begin to hate him, and they're jealous of him, and the father is treating him special. There's something else about Joseph, though, that you need to know. Joseph's mother, Rachel, has another son several years later. His name is Benjamin. But tragically, Rachel dies while giving birth to Benjamin. And now his beloved mother is not there to raise him, to protect him, to provide for him, to comfort him and encourage him. Joseph's all alone. And all he's got are these three stepmoms who hate him, who despise him, who are happy that his mother is gone, frankly. All of this, you can see just how tense, how difficult, how much hardship Joseph is enduring in this dysfunctional family of Jacob. 
That sets the scene for everything that we're about to see, everything that's coming forth here. It says that Joseph is 17 years old at the time. Now, that's a lot of problems right there for any family anyway. But it says that Joseph is 17 years old and he's pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with his stepbrothers and they're out in the field and, and, and taking care of the sheep. And he comes back home and he, he, he tattles. He, he tells on his brothers and says, that they were not doing something right and they got in trouble for it. And it says also that Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age. Now, granted, Joseph was not the youngest of the sons. He was the youngest of the, the 10 that were before him, but there was one more son, Benjamin. We talked about him just a moment ago. The word there, son of his old age, it's the idea of not just the son of his old age, but really the son that was like old. He was mature. He, he had a sense of responsibility. He, he could handle himself, and we're going to see an example of how he handled himself in a very responsible way in just a few moments. Dad, Jacob, gives Joseph a special coat. And you have heard the story of Joseph. Maybe you've seen Joseph in the, you know, the amazing Technicolor dream coat and that Broadway show. And you, you're familiar with that and all of that. And everybody talks about the coat of many colors. But this, this coat that, that Jacob gives to his favorite son, the special son, Joseph, it, it's not necessarily just that it was multicolored, you know, like all these different colors and designs, but it was probably highly embroidered and it had long sleeves and maybe went down below the, le the knees. And so it's a, it's a long coat. It's, it's like a, a coat a, a leader or a noble or a prince would wear. It, it's a coat of somebody who's given favorite status and has great responsibility. It's the coat that management wears, not labor, okay? This is like a white collar coat, not a blue collar coat. But all the other sons have blue collar coats from dad. And so you can see that by Jacob favoring Joseph, this favoritism is going to come back and haunt him. He's going to get in trouble for it later on. Now, it's, it's not wrong for, for dad to have a vision for a son's or daughter's life, for parents to see what their children can become. That's, that's not the problem. And, and I know we struggle. We need to be faithful and fair to all our kids and love and treat our, all of our children the right way to be cared for in that way. But, but this was a case where Jacob was clearly showing favoritism to Joseph and it was going to come back to haunt him. And we'll see in such a horrible way. It hurts Joseph and it hurts Jacob and it hurts the rest of the family as well. So here's Joseph wearing this coat and every time the brothers saw Joseph wear that coat, because I'm sure he wore it all the time, they hated him all the more. On top of all this, Joseph has a set of dreams and he has a dream about his future. The first dream it, the boys are out in the field. They're cutting down grain. They're bundling in, it into sheaves, you know, so they can gather it and put it on a wagon or put it on the back of a mule and carry it back to the, to the house or the granary. And, and they're binding these bundles of, of grain. And Joseph says, my grain that was laying on the ground stood up tall and straight and your bunches of grain bowed down and worshiped mine. And the brothers understood exactly 
what Joseph was saying by the dream. Are you saying that you're gonna reign and rule over us? Are you kidding? Because in their mind's eye, that was absolutely ridiculous. It was ridiculous to everybody to think that. He was at the bottom of the pecking order, not at the top. He wasn't the firstborn of, of Jacob. It was Reuben, he was the oldest son. He should get all the, the promises and the favored treatment, not Joseph, the, the runt of the litter, so to speak. And so there's this, this constant teasing and taunting of Joseph whenever he would tell a dream like that. But you know, this is one of the things that shows Joseph wasn't quite as mature as he should have been because he gets a second dream and then he doesn't learn his lesson the first time. He tells the dream again. He tells the dream again. And so he says, this time uh, I was dreaming that there I was and I'm out in, the, in outer space and the sun bows down to me and the moon bows down to me and 11 stars, hmm, must be for 11 brothers, they all bow down to me as well. There they are. They're bowing down to me and I'm being treated as a leader. I'm being treated as the person of most importance here, the one who is the leader of this family. And you've got 10 other brothers that are competing for who's gonna be first and they certainly are trying to put Joseph down and make sure that he's not the leader. And yet Joseph says, I've got these dreams. One in the field, one in space. I'm to be the leader. I'm going to lead this family rule over this family. And even when he tells his dad the dream, the dad goes, Joseph, you're saying mom and I are going to bow down to you? I don't think so. What are you talking about? And you can tell that he's kind of reacting to it. The brothers are reacting to it. Everybody's reacting because everybody thinks it's ridiculous that Joseph would ever be promoted to that kind of position of authority in leading the entire family. And yet Jacob mindful of the promise of God to his father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham is just kind of starting to wonder. Maybe God is going to do something special through Joseph. And he keeps it in his mind and ponders it. We pick up the story. We now know of Joseph's dreams and we know of what he thinks his future will entail. And we also know about how dysfunctional his family is and all the competition and all the animosity and all the rivalry that's going on there and that he's an orphan in a sense because his mother is dead. What's going to happen? It says in verse 12, now his brothers, Joseph's brothers, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Let me pause there. Shechem was a a very interesting and important place to the Jacob family, okay? And here's why. Several years earlier, one of the brother's sister, a girl by the name of Dinah, fell in love with one of the princes of that town, Shechem, and he raped her. He sexually assaulted her. And when the Jacob family found out about Dinah being defiled and, and uh, abused in that way, taken advantage of, they were incensed and they were furious about it. And uh, the father of this man who had assaulted Dinah came to Jacob, came to the brothers and says, look, we, you know, let's give our children in marriage and let's, let's, let's integrate with each other. Let's, let's just do this. And, and we, my son would like to marry your daughter and make her an honest woman. Let's do this. Let's do this. And they said, well, we're willing to do this, but we have one little tiny condition. 
We insist that all your men undergo a small surgical procedure. You each have to be circumcised. Ouch. I don't know what they were thinking because they all agreed. All the men in that town agreed to do that just so this one guy could get married. And so they do that. Well, while they're recuperating, the second-born and third-born son of Jacob, Levi and Simeon, attack that town and they kill all the men because they can't defend themselves. They hurt so much as they recover. They've slaughtered all the men. That's not a good way to make friends and influence people. It's not a good way to, you know, get to know your neighbors. But that is exactly what Jacob did. See, Jacob's family didn't own any of the land. They didn't have their own city. They didn't have their own town. They were strangers. They were aliens, foreigners that were there in Palestine at that time, the ancient land of Canaan. They were there. And so this is just another layer of difficulty that the Jacob family has to deal with. And Joseph is growing up in, and he's got this vision, this dream of his leadership. And he's got these brothers that just slaughtered a bunch of people and made their name as a family, a stench to the locals, what's going to happen? So here it is several years later, the brothers though, for whatever reason, they're able to go up because now all the men are gone there in Shechem, they can be there and they're not going to be bothered. (laughs) And so there they are, they're pasturing. This is about 50 miles away from where where Jacob is living and Joseph is with him. And so Jacob says to Joseph, I want you to go north. I want you to go to Shechem and check on your brothers and see how they're doing. I mean, this is a very responsible managerial leadership type of job that he's got to do. And here's Jacob sending Joseph, who's only 17 years old, out by himself. He's got to travel 50 miles on foot with his gear, find his way, find his brothers, do an honest assessment of what they're doing, and then come back and report to dad how things are going with the flocks and the pasturing. I just want you to see that that Joseph may come across kind of spoiled and maybe sounds like a tattletale or a brat, but he's somebody that had leadership ability and somebody that his father trusted and somebody who could handle responsibility. I want you to see that. He really does have the sign of leadership upon his life. And the dreams were just confirming that. So Joseph agrees and he goes. And he travels north to Shechem. And when he gets to Shechem, he doesn't see his brothers. He doesn't know where they're at and he can't find them. And it says in verse 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And this is very resourceful on Joseph's part because Dothan's about 13, 14 miles northwest of Shechem. So he's got to walk another day. It's already taken him two or three days to get to Shechem. He's got to go another day further north, further away from home, far away from his father, And he's on his own, he's making these decisions, and he's got to investigate what's going on and then report back to his dad. And so he does that. He finds his brothers and all the flocks there at Dotham. Now the thing is, it says in verse 18, that they, his brothers, saw him from afar. Now how in the world did they recognize it was Joseph? The coat. The coat. I mean, nobody else was wearing a coat like that. None of them, none of the locals. 
Joseph stood out because he's got this long sleeve coat that's going down past his knees. It's got all this embroidery work. It's a fancy coat like a prince would wear. And there he is. And they, at a distance, they see him coming as he's trudging his way, getting to them. He's wearing that coat. And they know it's him because he wore it all the time. And it says that as they saw him from afar, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and let us throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will come of his dreams. They mockingly call him the master dreamer in the original language there. Here comes this dreamer, this master dreamer. Let's see what happens to his dream. His dreams won't come true if we kill him and we bury his body in one of these cisterns that are here in the hillside. Listen, in ancient Palestine, rain only came a couple months of the year and they would dig these big holes in the ground and they would seal them up and and they'd line them with plaster on occasions. And the idea was is that if it rained, you'd just gather as much rain as you could. You'd put it in one of those tanks and you would seal it up, one of those cisterns, and you'd save the water there. But you can just imagine that as the summer and the dry season went on, the water would evaporate, they would use the water, and the cistern would be dry. And that's what happened here, is that the cistern that they're seeing is is empty. And they said, we're just going to kill him, and we're going to throw him his body in a cistern, and that'll be that. And Joseph will be gone, and the dreams will be gone. We'll see if he really leads us. Because he can't if he's dead. When Reuben, the oldest son, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. He explains, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him. And see, his goal is he wants to try to rescue Joseph later. Now, this is not because Reuben cared for Joseph. I think he despised Joseph as much as any of the other brothers. But Reuben needed to score some points with daddy because he had had a little moral indiscretion, if you get what I mean, with one of the stepmothers, one of Jacob's wives. He had slept with with her. And because of that, dad was furious that the son, the oldest son, had done that. I think Reuben is just trying to, look, Dad, I'm responsible. You can trust me. I'm the favorite son. I'm the one that's got your back. Look, I rescued Joseph, who you really love. I rescued him. I brought him back safely. Aren't I a good son? That's, that's Reuben's plan. That's what he wants to do. But then things spin out of control, out of Reuben's control, out of Joseph's control, out of Jacob's control, out of everybody else's control. But you know who's still in control? God is still in control. Even when you can't see him working, it doesn't mean that he's not working. He is working. When he makes you wait, God's still working. And that's what we can trust in and depend on. The thing is, it says in verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, when he finally arrived, you can imagine him saying, hey guys, how's it going? Dad's worried about you. They didn't take the time to answer because... They grabbed him, 
They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty and there was no water in it. So don't worry, Joseph didn't drown. And no, he wasn't stuck in the mud like Jeremiah was when he was thrown into a cistern. No, he's down in the bottom of this this cave, so to speak, carved out of the ground where they would store water. He's down in the bottom of this tank and he's naked and he's there and he's exposed to the elements and he's hungry and he's alone and he's been injured and he's been rejected by his family. This is an interesting theme in Joseph's life and it's a theme that you see throughout scripture is that God will often use the person that's rejected and turn them into a deliverer the one who will rescue the other people. You see that on different occasions. And you see this in here, Joseph's life. He's been rejected by his brothers. He's been attacked by them. In a few moments, we're gonna see that he gets sold into slavery, which is horrific. But in a sense, Joseph is a picture of the life of Jesus because here's Jesus, the perfect son of God, who comes to earth to rescue us. But in the process of rescuing us, he gets rejected and nailed to the cross and dies in our place. And the whole rejection of Jesus winds up being the means of God's salvation, of him rescuing people who trust in his son. You have Joseph who gets sold into slavery who winds up going to Egypt and will years later rescue his family. The dream comes true. It's just right now God has pushed the pause button. No, they won't bow down and worship you right now, Joseph. No, they will not honor you and respect you and follow you right now, Joseph. But they will later. I have some things to do while you wait. We'll talk about those in just a moment. The thing is, I just think this sounds like some kind of movie where, you know, it's like the Godfather of the Mafia or something like that because they they attack him, they throw him in it, they're trying to think about how to kill him, and it says they sit down to eat. And they're just enjoying this meal. And it says, as they sat down to eat, and as they looked up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way carrying it down to Egypt. Gum, balm, and myrrh were were perfumes and medicinal supplies and confectionery supplies, things that people would use just to make life better. And they had gathered these things from Assyria and Syria to the north, Damascus and northern Palestine, northern Canaan, and they collected these things and here they are, the brothers are at Dothan. And where is Dothan? Right along the international trade route where these travelers are trekking down the road going to Egypt to sell their wares. And as they stop there, they flag down these these travelers and their camels, and they say, hey, we'd like to make a deal. We've got a slave here. We'd like to sell him to you. How much are you willing to pay for him? I'm sure you could get a nice price for him down in Egypt. And so basically what we read here in Joseph, uh, Judah, the fourthborn son of Jacob, comes up with this idea. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our blood, our hand, be upon him for he is our brother. 
Our own flesh, how terribly ironic and, and just absolutely ridiculous is that. He is our brother. We shouldn't kill him. We can sell him into slavery, but let's not kill him, okay? Don't let his hand, our hand be against him and his blood be upon us. Oh, far be it from us to do that. He is our brother. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit not to rescue him, but they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. 20 shekels of silver is about $9. They sold Joseph for nine bucks, which by the way was the going rate of a male slave, a young man, a male slave in the ancient Near East around that time. This matches up with what archeologists and historians have found. Nine bucks, they each get 90 cents for selling their brother into slavery. Uh, it is interesting though, nine dollars is what a shepherd would earn for a whole year's worth of watching sheep. So they're kind of thinking, hey, look at us. We just made a profit. Oh, we sold our brother, but we made a profit. This is pretty good. So Joseph is taken to Egypt and his dream has been put on hold and he has to wait. Now this dysfunctional family is not just hurting Joseph, he's, they're hurting themselves and especially their father as well. And I want you to see what happens here. It says in verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. Apparently he had been away. Maybe it was his turn to watch the sheep or something when this trading transaction, selling Joseph into slavery took place. Reuben was caught off guard by that. He tore his clothes in grief and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? He's not concerned for Joseph. He's concerned for his reputation with dad. Where will I go? What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? Not, how could you sell him into slavery? He's your brother. He didn't say that. So this is what they do. It says they, in verse 31, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it in the blood, the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their fathers and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Doesn't that sound kind of clinical? You know, matter of fact, we found this. Is this your son's? Not our brother's. Is this not our, you know, Joseph's? Is this your son's robe? You need to identify it. See, they're letting Jacob come to his own conclusion. They don't say a thing. They just say, hey, we found this. What do you think? And this is what Joseph thinks, Jacob thinks. It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn in pieces. In the Hebrew, it probably sounded more like this. This is my son's robe. <laughs> Look at it. He must have been eaten by a wild animal. He's now gone, Joseph! And it says that Jacob from that time on began wearing clothes of mourning, scratchy sackcloth, and he grieved and he mourned, and it says that his sons and daughters tried to console him. Dad, we're so sorry that Joseph's gone. We miss him too. Oh, we're brokenhearted over this. And the whole time they know it's a ruse, they know it's a lie, but they're trying to console Jacob, trying to comfort him. And Jacob is only saying, all he can say is, I'm going to go to the grave. I'm going to Sheol. 
in grief. I will mourn the rest of my life because Jacob is dead. That's what he says he's going to do. And the whole time his brothers are holding this lie and hiding it from him. In verse 36, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Literally, his title is he's the captain of the butchers. So he's either cutting up the cattle and serving meat to Pharaoh, or butcher is a metaphor, metaphorical term for he's the chief of the executioners. Either way, I wouldn't want to work for that guy. I think it would be very dangerous. And yet that's exactly where Joseph finds himself. He's been sold into slavery. This is something that I want you to think about as you look at Joseph's, this episode from Joseph's life. God often, after letting us have a dream, giving us a vision, showing us a picture in our mind's eye of what he might want to do or could do in and through our lives, through our families, after giving that, he often hits the pause button and makes us wait. And what you and I need to remember is just because God makes us wait doesn't mean he stopped working. He is working in all of this. Well, what is God doing? What is he working? What is he trying to accomplish? I think there's at least two things that are going on here. The situation has to mature. The situation has to ripen. It's important for us to remember that, that God has a plan for the people of Israel, that they would grow, that they would prosper, that they would become numerous, and, and that God would have to lead them and rescue them. And, and it all is, hinges on the people getting to Egypt. There needs to be a humbling of the, the sons of Jacob. There needs to be a healing in jo Jacob's life and, a, and a, a humbling and a, a maturing on the parts of the brothers. They're not ready to receive Joseph's leadership. They hate Joseph. They're jealous of Joseph. They want to murder Joseph. They're glad Joseph is gone. They're not ready to receive his leadership. There's got to be a ripening, a, a, a maturing of the situation that the Jacob family would be ready for Joseph's leadership. And they're not ready yet. But there's also got to be a ripening in God's servant's heart, in his life, her life, there's a maturing that goes on when God pushes that pause button and makes us wait. Joseph has a lot of maturing and ripening that he has to go through. Yes, he's tall, strong, handsome, of course. That's kind of what we'll see in some of the passages that we'll read about his life. He has leadership ability. He's very skillful. He's very sensitive to spiritual things. He has a way of understanding dreams. Later on, we're going to see that he can interpret dreams and predict the future through that. God has given him that gift. He has leadership skill, management, administrative skill. He has all of this. He's a charming person. People respect him and, and, and like him, except his family. <laughs> Minor detail. For God to allow all those gifts and abilities in Joseph's life to reach maturity, he has to be removed from his family. 
He has to be taken away from them so that he could spread his own wings, so that he can flourish, blossom, and mature and grow on his own. He gets to learn a new culture. He gets to learn a new language. He gets to learn and take responsibility in a place where there's no favoritism. He's not daddy's favorite anymore. He's a slave. And he's got to show that he has the leadership ability. He's got to be able to be creative and resourceful and to work hard and be industrious. And he has to demonstrate that. And he probably had to start off doing very simple, minor, unskillful type of tasks. No skill required. He doesn't know the language. He can't really communicate. He's just a kid. But he's got to work his way up. And he has the opportunity to do that. He has the opportunity to grow in his own faith. God, where are you? I heard from my father this promise you made to him and to our family that you would bless all the nations of earth through your descendants. And what's happening? Are you sidelining me? Are you putting me on the shelf? Are you going to use me? I want to be used. God, what are you doing? In all of this, Joseph has the opportunity to grow and mature and ripen as he goes through all all this. I mean, think of the alternative to the slavery that he's going through. And I'm not trying to glamorize, justify, excuse slavery in any way. No, it is a horrific crime. They basically sold him into slavery. They kidnapped him and sold him. That is a capital crime. It's horrific what his brothers did to him. But what was the alternative? Death. God spares his life. God spares his life and puts him in a very horrible situation, an awful situation. But in the midst of that awful situation, God matures him and ripens him so that he can be ready to lead. And the thing is, folks, the story you know is not over. There's lots of hills to climb and lots of valleys to go down through. Joseph's on that roller coaster, but God is working through all of that to help Joseph come to the place of maturity where God can use him to really lead his family, to protect them. Even though he's been rejected by his family, he's going to be the redeemer and rescuer of his family about 20 years later. And it's important for you and I to see the big picture. That even though we don't see how God is working and he's put us on hold and he's making us wait, God is still working and he's working his plan for his honor and for his glory. I know some of you are, are thinking about all this today and you're saying dreams, dreams, dreams. I don't know about dreams because that just seems so subjective. It sounds like it's so open to manipulation. I think Joseph's brothers thought that Joseph just was kind of acting out on his own ego, his own pride, his own special status as daddy's favorite son. They thought, well, of course you're dreaming that because you get treated as daddy's little boy all the time. You're his favorite all the time. You're his pet all the time. Of course you're going to dream a dream like that. That doesn't mean you're really going to be a leader. It's just you and your ego. And you've heard people tell you their dreams. And you've had dreams yourself. And you realize that the dreams that you've had were just because you ate too much pizza before you went to bed. Or you watched that scary movie. But sometimes God does give dreams. He gives you a picture in your mind of something that could be true in the future 
It'll stretch you. It'll challenge you. It'll make you pray. It'll make you really lean on God to see it come true. But sometimes God does give you a dream. How do you know if your dream is really from God? You always have to study God's Word. Now, your dream won't be listed there, chances are. But if it's ever inconsistent with what your dream is ever inconsistent with what God's Word says, then you know it's not true. You know it's not God's will. I mean, if God is, and if your dream is, I should have an affair with that married man, and you're married, that's not God's will. So that dream is not from God, in just in case you're wondering. And if you're saying, I don't need to listen to my parents, and my dream is I don't have to give in to them, and I don't have to follow them, and I can do my own thing, and go my own way without respecting or honoring them, that's against God's will too. I can compromise here. I can turn, cheat and cut a corner here. That's not, those dreams are not from God because we're to live our lives with holiness and integrity and in obedience to God's word. It's also wise to take your dreams and pray about them and ask God for confirmation. And it's also wise to go to godly counselors to give you advice. That's not what Joseph did because he used his dream as a point of bragging and boasting. And those people didn't want to hear the dream and they rejected it and ridiculed him. But if you go to someone and you say, you know what, I got this idea. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's from God, but I've, I've, it's kind of like a dream. What do you think? Do you think God could be working through something like that? Do you think he's calling me to something like that? And just let them listen. Let them pray with you. Let them see what he's calling you to do. God leads his people. God speaks to his people. God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us in prayer. So every now and then he speaks through a dream. But you need to make sure that you're praying and seeking his word and trusting godly counsel. Don't sit there and try to interpret it all by yourself. And certainly don't go to Madam's, you know, whoever, you know, in her little, you know, fortune-telling shop. Don't trust her to give you an interpretation because she doesn't know what she's talking about. In all of this, God gives us a dream and he makes us wait. But when we wait, remember God's still working and God will bring about his dream. If it's truly from him, he will bring it about and bring glory to your name, his name, through your life as you trust in him, okay? God's at work, even when we're put on hold. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time that we could be together. I thank you for the story of Joseph. I thank you for what we learn here. And, and uh, Lord, in all of this, help us just to remember that when we're trying to do your will and you make us wait, help us to trust you that you're at work. And when you open the door, when you give us the green light, help us, Father, to move forward in faith knowing that you're doing your will for your honor and for your glory. Thank you for your goodness, Lord, and I pray that uh, you would continue to work in our lives and prepare our hearts for what you're calling us to do to serve you today and every day. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.